Welcome to the Hiraith Magazine Podcast. I'm Sarah Bringhurst Familia, coming to you from Amsterdam. Hiraith is a Welsh word, meaning nostalgia for a home that no longer exists or never was. On the podcast, we explore the question, what is home? Whether we move for love, work, refuge, or adventure, many of us are trying to make ourselves at home, far away from the place where we were born. So join us on this journey as we travel around the world in search of home. delighted that you are here with me again on the Hiraith podcast. We have a bit of a mystery guest this week. During this episode, I speak with, we'll call her Emily. She lives in Saudi Arabia. We will talk about what it's like to live in the kingdom under 24-hour curfew. I am here with Emily, who is an American living in Saudi Arabia. Emily is not her real name. We're using a pseudonym to protect her identity so that she can safely tell us exactly what is happening over there. So welcome to the Hiraith Magazine podcast, Emily. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So to start off, let's go ahead and why don't you tell me about where you're from and your family background and also where you lived growing up. Okay. I um, am broadly from the U.S. I was born there. My parents are both um, U.S. citizens, born and raised. And we kind of moved all over when I was a small child, kind of hopped state to state with my dad's job. And then when I was 12 years old, we made our 10th move and moved to Mexico City, where we stayed for, my family was there 12 years and I was there for six of them. I was there ages 12 to 18 before I went off to university. So I'm not really from anywhere. (laughs) But that's where I felt like I spent my formative years. Okay, so you really had kind of a dual childhood there. That's very cool. So um, the traveling around did not stop there. So about two years ago, almost two years ago, you moved with your husband and kids to Saudi Arabia. That is a really big change from Michigan. So (laughs) (laughs) tell me a little bit about how daily life was different in Saudi Arabia from Michigan? Um, Saudi is a little bit like living on the moon. I thought being fairly well-traveled and having lived abroad that I would be prepared for it. And it is more different than I could have expected. I mean, climate-wise, it's about as opposite from Michigan as you can get. It's very hot, um, although the winters are beautiful. And it's a very um, conservative society. It is a very, I mean, it's a monarchy. And I mean, some would argue it's a little bit authoritarian. We live on a compound that is not, it's for expats globally. So it's not just an American compound, but it has people from all over the world. I have neighbors from almost every continent within a block of me. Um, So it's a really wonderful pluralistic community that we live in. And on our compound, we can be fairly conservative American. We can wear shorts as long as they hit the knee and short sleeves. Um, And we can kind of go about our normal day. Nothing on our compound specifically closes for prayer times five times a day. Whereas off the compound, 
Everything closes for prayer five times a day for about half an hour to 45 minutes, depending on where you are. Um, women are expected to be dressed conservatively, usually wearing an abaya, which is a long robe that covers to wrists and ankles, kind of shapeless muumuu thing. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's a complete adjustment. I was talking to a friend last night about how long it took me to figure out how to bake cookies here because of all the different flours and all the different sugars. And I couldn't figure out which one was supposed to work right. And it took me literally six months to figure out how to make a good batch of cookies here. <laughs> okay. So aside from baking cookies, what would you say were a few of your biggest challenges when you were first getting used to living there? My biggest challenge by far was um, moving from being a fairly independent person to being a very dependent person. Um, everything here goes through the working spouse, which 99% of the time is the husband, um, almost universally. In fact, all the paperwork wants your husband's employer, not just whoever's working. They want your husband's employer and his work phone, and there's no space for the wife's employer or work phone, or there's not really single moms here. Um, and legally I'm under his thumb. So I, he has to authorize me, my visa to leave the country. He has to, you know, has to sign off on anytime I withdraw money from our bank account here, he gets a text, just little things like that, that, um, made it very difficult to set up our lives here because I'm normally the person who sets up the phones and the internet and that, you know, the little things, getting the kids situated with school and all this stuff. And I had to wait for him to do it all because I just, I'm not the person with the working residence permit. And so even basic decisions like which plants we wanted in our yard, um, I would tell people like, oh no, not that, I want this. And they would say, okay, we'll talk to boss. And boss meant my husband. Wow, that is crazy. Very different, very interesting. So that, those are some challenges, but what are some of your favorite things, things that you enjoy about living there? Um, I really love, it's a slower pace than in the U.S. I really enjoy that. I enjoy that we have a lot of family time together. Um, we, my husband has a pretty flexible work schedule and they value his time with his family. And so that's never, they want it, they prioritize. They know that you're here to work to support your family, not that your family is supposed to support your work, which I really appreciate. Um, I love the community that we live in. I love having friends from everywhere and getting to know people, um, it is the source of some tension sometimes around certain holidays, like Halloween was a big one where some people are really put off by it, whereas, you know, that's an American thing that people want to celebrate. Other people tend to think that we're communing with dead spirits or something. I, but it's, and in Islam, so there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of religious pluralism and cultural pluralism and a lot of different things that I think is really valuable, but also can be um, a source of discussion or tension depending on the day. Yes, some of the sometimes the positives and the negatives are two sides of the same coin. Exactly. So I'm interested also, since you grew up kind of moving around a lot and also had this very formative, quite lengthy international experience as a kid, I'm interested in what it's like watching your kids also have an international experience, even though it's on the other side of the world from where you lived as a child. Yeah, it's been really fun, actually, to watch them kind of experience the things that I remember experiencing. Just watching them just slowly discover that the way that they're used to doing things is just one way of doing things. It's not the way of doing things. 
to see them kind of understand and grapple with the differences between people's cultures and religions and all these things. My daughter has a, one of her very best friends is an American Muslim girl and all these different things. She's like, well, she's not allowed to do that. Like, but she's not allowed to go to Chuck E. Cheese because she's Muslim. And I'm like, actually it has nothing to do <laughs> with being Muslim. It just has to do with her being busy that day or just little things like that. It's fun to watch them kind of understand it and to kind of get a sense of themselves as global citizens, as being part of something bigger than just, you know, our home within the U.S. and different political systems. And just that, again, we have our way of doing things, but it's not the right way or the best way. It's just one way that we do it. That's very cool. And I think that's kind of a gift that you're giving your children also. I hope so. It's either going to make or break us all. That's what I constantly think about my kids. Either you're going to thank me for this or you're going to hate me for this. <laughs> exactly. We all need something to talk about in therapy. So <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So uh, now that you've been living there about a, a year and a half or two, would you say that Saudi Arabia really feels like home for you? Yes, it really does. And that has been as big of a surprise as anything. Um for me, home has always been like a sense of sense of place or a sense of belonging, feeling like I'm grounded somewhere and that I I yearn for it when I'm not there. Um, and much quicker than almost anywhere else I've lived, I've really kind of found a home here, which has been partially because, again, of the beautiful community we moved into. Um, part of it is that just, you know, adjusting, I think, kind of bonds bonded us as a family unit where we all kind of are going through the same things and the same frustrations. Um, but it really does. I feel it's been interesting during this pandemic because I've had a lot of friends who have been really yearning to get back to wherever they're from, um, yearning to get back to family members and things, um, that are more familiar to them or even people who have physical, physical houses in their home countries, wanting to get back there because that's where they feel at home. And I haven't had that as much. I feel like I, I mean, I will be sad if we can't visit family as we plan this year, but I don't have that yearning to get back. I feel like I am home and I'm here. And so it's been nice for me. Yeah, that's wonderful. And that is actually something I wanted to ask um, a few weeks ago, although it feels like kind of a lifetime. The U.S. government called for all citizens to either come home or be prepared to remain abroad for an indefinite period. So when that happened, how did that announcement feel for you? And did you consider going back at all? Um, that, that was kind of crazy to me. Honestly, I, I watch those State Department notices and things as we travel. And I try to, you know, stay abreast of different, you know, situations that could become a little bit more, I don't know, dangerous or whatever. Um, but this idea that we should all come back no, it never came into my mind. I never thought that I would be safer, especially in Michigan where I, you know, the coronavirus has hit pretty hard. Um, no, and actually, and we, even before that happened, Saudi closed their um, land borders and their airspace. So there are no flights in or out of here with the exception of um, like repatriation flights. There are no like nobody's in or out. We have friends who have been stuck just over the causeway in Bahrain for five weeks and they can't get back to their jobs and their families. Um, so we had to make the decision pretty quick whether we were going to stay or go. And it really wasn't even a discussion. We were just like, of course, we're here. This is where 
our livelihood is, this is where our family is, this is where we are. Um, so no, we're, we're going to stay on that other side where we prepare to stay abroad for an indefinite period of time. Wow, me too. But <laughs> I admit it gave me a little bit of pause when they said it that way. It just felt like, oh, wow, I guess we did kind of make a choice here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because we always thought we would have that like, well, if it just gets crazy, we'll just go back, right? And we've had moments in the time that we've been here that things have gotten a little heated. And it's like, well, if things heat up even more, we can just go back. And I was like, well, nope, <laughs> here we are. Right, exactly. So different countries around the world have reacted in different ways to the coronavirus. And one of the things that's really interesting to me has been the different type of language governments have used to communicate the measures that they're taking. So here in the Netherlands, we have what they're calling intelligent lockdown. And in the United States, they use this kind of softer term of sheltering in place. And in Saudi Arabia, you've got what they kind of dramatically call a 24-hour curfew. So can you tell us what that means? Oh, yes, it is, it is as dramatic as it sounds. The 24-hour curfew means you are in your home. You are not supposed to be outside your home unless you are walking a dog, basically within 50 meters on either side of your house. Um, you can make appointments to go to the grocery store um, and you have to have proof of that when you are traveling and you cannot leave your neighborhood to go to the grocery store. You have to shop at the store that is local to you. Um, and beyond that, that's it. There's no going on walks. There's no going on bike rides. There's no going to drop something off at a friend's or pick something up. Um, it's just, I, I sit on my front porch sometimes and that's about as far as we go. <laughs> And even then, the grocery shopping times, we just started Ramadan. And so grocery shopping times are between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. because they really don't want people gathering during those iftar or sukhor times when they're having their meals um, to prevent the spread of coronavirus. So we are just home. I think I've left my house in the last two, two and a half weeks, probably three times. Um, once to maybe pick something up from a friend's porch and then a couple of times for the grocery store <laughs> before I realized just how seriously they were taking these things. Wow. So trips to the grocery store become very exciting then. <laughs> yeah, it's a big day. We put on our non-stretchy pants and maybe even do our hair. Wow. Okay. So, and uh, dogs, but not kids can go out. That's interesting. Also, do you have a dog? I don't. I have two cats. And I even tried to walk one of them and it did not go well. I was hoping for some sort of pressure relief valve to get outside. Um, but she just hid under the car and wouldn't come out. Um, so, yeah, you can't walk your kids. You can't do anything. We have an alley behind our house um, that is where our garbage cans are and stuff. And so I will go out and throw something in the garbage and then maybe go like a house or two down and back. Just to feel like I can move around. It's been, cause I also, I mean, I don't live in a tiny house, but I, we don't have a ton of space. And so being able to feel like I'm being active and not just like this blob who blobs from this room to that room has been really difficult for me. Wow, so hanging out in the garbage can alleyway. <laughs> that's my fun social time. <laughs> Actually, that's my fun alone time. Cause the other thing is we're never out of each other's space. So we are together all the time, which I'm sure everyone can empathize with. Everyone except the people who are now enforcedly alone all the time. That's true. <laughs> there is no longer any type of in-between. So I'm interested with, you have four kids, and 
what, how does that play out practically for you? What is daily life like right now, as opposed to what it was like before? So we were really fortunate in that our school system kind of saw this coming. Um, And so they started putting in a distance learning plan weeks before they actually had to implement it. And they had been talking to experts in China and Korea and some other places on how they had done virtual learning. So we, when they shut schools down um, on March 9th, I think, we were pretty much ready to go. So within a couple of days, my kids are up at 8 a.m. Every single one of them has to log on. Um, My older two are in middle school, and so they have their main core classes, their math, science, language arts, and social studies. And they will have, you know, basically two hour blocks for each of those. They have an hour of their language twice a week, an hour of fine arts twice a week. And they are basically expected to log on, be live with their class for about five minutes, complete the activities, log back on at the end of the class to complete an exit survey or get a password for a quiz or something to make sure that they're staying engaged. And then in the middle of the week, they break it up with an activity where it's basically you get to choose any of these learning activities. This is just for the sake of the fun of it. So, I mean, we've had kids setting off Diet Coke and Mentos in the backyard, trying to figure out how to make it go higher or what makes it go stronger or whatever. We've had a lot of baking happening. Um, And so they do that. The younger kids really only have school from about 8 till 1030. And it's a lot of set a timer and read for 20 minutes and, you know, watch this video on how light refracts through water and makes a rainbow and different things like that. And then, you know, write about it and then take a picture of your writing and send it to the class. And then they get on and um, have a live Zoom call with their teacher and their classmates for about, really it lasts about six minutes before things go totally haywire and it gets shut down. But so that's, and so from eight to noon, really we are doing school. And then in the afternoon, the older two kids usually have an hour or two of something to do. And then the rest of it is just kind of free time for puzzles or board games or TV or whatever we want. Sounds intense and also exciting and also exhausting. Exactly. All of the above. So um, it's interesting that even before this, you were kind of in a way in your little compound, living a lot in in that, uh, I don't want to say bubble, but kind of maybe, right? (laughs) It's absolutely a bubble, yes. (laughs) So I'm curious what you kind of hear on the news or what what are the worries about coronavirus specifically in uh, Saudi Arabia or uh, specific groups that are particularly affected? Um, From what I'm hearing, the biggest concerns are in migrant camps. So there's a lot of immigrant labor in Saudi Arabia and a lot of them are living in, you know, tight quarters. Um, a lot of people from Bangladesh and India and, um, East Africa. And so there has been a lot of that. There's also a lot of close knit or not close knit, like high density communities out in the Western part of Saudi Arabia in Mecca, Medina, and the two holy cities. Um, and a lot of them are people who have lived there for generations. Um, but are in these very large family groups. From what I understand, those are the groups that are being hardest hit, partially because not all of them have, the Saudi citizens have a guarantee of free healthcare, um, whereas other people, if you're a migrant, it depends on, your sponsor is supposed to provide it, and there's some variation in how much access people realistically have. And so the Saudi government actually came out and said that all treatment for coronavirus is going to be free, 
no one's going to get deported for seeking health care. Can you please come out and get tested? We don't want this to keep spreading. And then just recently, they've started going door to door in a lot of these more dense communities and just testing everybody. And so Saudi's numbers have actually really jumped in the last week, um, partially because they're going and testing proactively everyone and isolating them and trying to get this under control. Wow. So as you mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, the crescent moon was sighted last night. So we, we just happened to be speaking on the very first day of Ramadan. And you have already been in Saudi Arabia for one Ramadan. So what is it like under normal circumstances in Saudi Arabia? And then how will this year be different? So normally in Ramadan, things are just shut down during the day. Like there is not a whole lot going on. In some Muslim countries, you have, you know, stores and restaurants and stuff that stay open. But here, that's not, I mean, the grocery stores will stay open, but that's about it. And so any shopping you need to do or anytime you want to go out to eat, you have to do after the sunset prayer, which is roughly like 6.30 or 7. So things are really hopping from about 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. during Ramadan, normally. Um, This year, you're only able to go out during the day from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and really only to grocery stores and pharmacies and for medical care. Every other store has been closed for weeks now. So restaurants are operating, they're doing delivery, um, but no takeout. But every other store, I mean, malls have been closed and just hardware stores are closed. Everything has been closed for a long time. So on some level, I think it will actually feel fairly similar in that I was already grocery shopping during the day and going to bed at night because I'm not... (laughs) I'm not a night owl, so I don't go out and shop during Ramadan usually. Um, But I think this year, I think for me, it's not going to look very different. But for Muslims here, it's going to be radically different because it's such a time of gathering for people to gather for these iftar meals at the end of the day and to, you know, get together with family and celebrate and do all this stuff at night. And so I think for a lot of people, it's actually going to be very, very difficult and very isolating because it's a time. I mean, it's like... In the U.S., if you just told everyone, I'm sorry, you can't go home for Christmas, you can't get together with your families for Christmas. I mean, I think it's just a really, it's going to be a difficult Ramadan, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, So I want to kind of start wrapping things up. But uh, since you aren't Muslim and Ramadan is not really not a problem for you that it's not happening, but what is one thing that you really do fantasize about doing once the curfew is finally lifted? I mean, this sounds so basic, but I want to go on a sunset walk so badly. (laughs) I like dream about all the routes I used to take to go on walks just through my community and just being able to like listen to the birds and see the sunset and hear the prayer calls was always just such a meditative time for me that I really desperately miss that. Um, Beyond that, I would love like a really good hot burger. Not one that's been in a delivery car for an hour and gets to me sort of lukewarm. I'd love like a really hot burger. So both of those things sound amazing to me. Well, I hope that your burger and your sunset walk are coming in not too long. And I hope that you and your family also stay safe and healthy. Thank you. And thank you so much for being with us, Emily. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been so fun. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. And if you have a story you'd like to share, visit us on the web at hiraithmagazine.com. That's H-I-R-A-E-T-H magazine.com. 
You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or SoundCloud. The podcast is available to download on iTunes and other podcast platforms. If you like the Hiraith podcast, you can help by sharing it with your friends. And if your podcast platform allows, leaving us a rating. This episode featured music by Maidan and was recorded and produced by me, Sarah Bringhurst Familia, on the canals of Amsterdam. 